You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. So my wife's dad is one of 12 kids. So we have family reunions. There's kind of a lot of people there. So this summer we had a family reunion about three, four days outside of Sacramento. And there's like, I don't know, 75, 100 people there. Cousins, aunts, great uncles, grandparents, people you've never even met, new kids, because it's huge. And one day our family decided to go down the South Fork American River whitewater rafting. Because our group is so big, there must have been, I don't know, seven or eight rafts just for our crew that went. Now, the way this was set up is it was a full-day trip. We went about three or four hours in the morning, and the rapids were like ones and twos, pretty easy. And then you have lunch, about an hour break, and then in the afternoon, you get into this kind of threes plus where it's a little bit more intense. Now that you know what you're doing, you should be competent to handle it. Well, if you've, how many of you have been whitewater rafting? Okay, good, a few of you have. You remember the advice, if you get thrown out of the raft... You don't reach for something. Don't swim to the side. Certainly don't try to put your feet down. Just put your head back, feet up, and ride through the rapids and then get back in the raft or the boat. Well, we went all morning. Things were cool. But then we went in the afternoon. And I was kind of confident and excited for what we're doing in the afternoon. But we're rolling maybe an hour after lunch. And our guide says, okay, we're about to enter into the most intense rapids of the day. I'm thinking, awesome. I got this. It's called the hospital bar. (laughs) And the area after it is called the resting room. (laughs) So I'm sitting in the front left. My father-in-law is the front right. And we're doing a lot of the steering and and kind of helping to control this thing, here's what I remember. We're pulling up and you can just see in front of you the rapids that are coming. And it's like we went down, there was a big rock in front of us that shoots us to the right and then into the rest of the rapids. All I remember is going down and being thrown so hard, I could not possibly hold on for my life. My father-in-law, who's 10 pounds heavier than I am, is thrown into the back of the boat, lands in my wife's lap. I'm tossed off the side. And you know, when you get thrown underwater like a washing machine, you don't know what's up and down and you're discombobulated. I try to go up and somehow the boat had turned, so I'm hitting the bottom of it, which increases the stress. And then finally, I get to the top. What do you think was in my mind? Number one, breathe. Good. (laughs) That's definitely in my mind. You actually don't think about that. You just do it, right? I wasn't thinking like, you know what? Actually, while I'm here, I'm just going to enjoy floating down the rapids. No, that's not really in your mind. Your mind is, I want to get back in the boat. That's it. I wasn't enjoying it that moment, although that day we had a great time. I wanted to get back in the boat. If you've been there and any of you have been tossed, you know when your life gets turned upside down physically, you just want to get back in the boat. What about in life when somebody's life is turned upside down physically, car crash, heart attack? Where do people go? The answer is they go to a hospital, right? If your life is on the line, Nobody sits there and says, you know what? One more hand of poker. 
you know what, one more Super Bowl commercial, this one's going to be good, and then I'll go to the hospital. Nobody says that. Nobody sits there and thinks, well, I wonder if I should go to the hospital. I wonder if they'll help me. Could you imagine if we had a crisis in America where people thought, you know what, hospitals aren't going to actually help you. If you go there, they're more into politics than they are helping people. They're more into money than helping you get better. We'd have a lot more people sick and hurt, wouldn't we? See, in life, because we have something called 911, when there's an emergency, we want to get somebody to the hospital. What about when there's an emergency relationally or emotionally or spiritually? What's the first thought that comes to somebody's mind where they want to go for that help. You know as a whole what their thought is not, sadly, increasingly in America? Their thought is not, my life is turned upside down. I've been thrown from the relational boat. I need to go to church because these are people that will love me and help me. David Kinnaman wrote a book two years ago, and he said, increasingly, Christianity is considered extreme and irrelevant in more and more Americans. Now, a few years before this, he wrote a book called Unchristian. And they went out and they surveyed non-believers who don't describe themselves as Christians and asked them, how do you view the church and how do you view Christians? Notice, excuse me, his study revealed, his study said, number one, hypocritical, Number two, too focused on getting converts. Number three, anti-homosexual. In his study, they said, if you tell somebody I'm a Christian, you might as well say you hate gays, according to this study. Too sheltered, too political, and judgmental. Can you imagine if this is how people viewed hospitals? They're too political. They hate gays. They're too focused on converts. They're judgmental. Nobody would go. Well, what's more important? Somebody's body or their soul? Now, as Christians, they're both important. But our bodies fade away and our soul is eternal. The question I want to ask this morning is what's it going to take increasingly in our culture and for you and your community when somebody's life is turned upside down and it's broken relationally, emotionally, spiritually, that their thought would be, man, I got to go to church. I got to call a Christian because that's someone who would love me and stand by me and help me get my life on track. In the conclusion of the study by Kinnaman, he said, only a small percentage of outsiders strongly believe that the labels love, respect, hope, and trust describe Christianity. A minority of outsiders perceive Christianity as genuine and as real as something that makes sense and is relevant to their life. Isn't that sad? <laughs> this is how people are increasingly perceiving you and perceiving me. I was having coffee with a youth pastor maybe 18 months ago. And I asked him, he had been a youth pastor, he was in his second decade. I said, how has youth ministry changed 
over the time that you've been doing this. And what he said to me that I've heard increasingly from number of youth pastors, he said, you know what? The formula like 10 and 20 years ago was if you have cool events and you have food, they will come, right? Feed them, give them fun, students will show up. He says, but one thing we hear just more and makes it harder is number one, students and people are really busy. They've packed their schedule. But number two, we hear sometimes, I don't know if I'm going to send my kids to church. Like it's bigoted and it's homophobic and they're exclusive and they're too political. He said, that's what he's hearing increasingly. So you know, just read the news. The view of Christianity in the church has changed radically just within our lifetime. The question is, what can we do to help people that when they're hurting, their thought is, man, I got to go to a Christian. I got to go to a church. So I was at a conference called ETS, Evangelical Theological Society. I'm a professor at Biola University. And this is where like three to 4,000 professors get together and read nuanced papers of like one verb in the gospel of Luke. It's awesome. And I went to a seminar by Daryl Bach from Dallas Theological Seminary. And he asked a question. He said, what can we do as a church? So when people hear this charge that Christians are bigoted and hateful and homophobic that's repeated ad nauseum in the media, their next thought is, that doesn't ring true to me. He said, you know what it is? It's when they're in relationship with a Christian who treats them with kindness and with grace and with love. So when they hear this common charge, their next thought is, that doesn't make sense. That doesn't match the Christians I know in my life. So how do we do this? The answer is obvious. Let's follow the model of Jesus from the passage we just heard read this morning from Mark chapter 2. So I'll read it to you, but if you want to turn there and follow along, that would be awesome. If you can't find Mark chapter 2, it's right after Mark chapter 1. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Mark. Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2, verses, we're just going to read 15, 16, and 17. Three verses, and then kind of explore some, some insights from this passage. Mark chapter 2, verse 15. It says, And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Verse 16, and the scribes and the Pharisees, when they saw he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. When I first read this, my thought was, why do all these sinners want to hang out with Jesus? You see the irony of this? Times I look back on my life and I've been sinning, doing things I know that is wrong, the last thing I want to be around is somebody who's just holy and perfect and has their act together. Typically, sinners aren't like, let's find pastors and priests and like holy people to hang out with us. They kind of want to distance themselves from it. But here's Jesus 
the only sinless person who's ever lived. And sinners and tax collectors are choosing to dine with him. What was it about his character that drew people to him? That's a good question. But the passage says they were reclining at the table. Now, in our culture, you might read this and just skip over it and keep going, but there's a reason this teaching started with that. You see, in America today, we've kind of lost the art of breaking bread with somebody. We're busy. We have our smartphones out. We have the Dallas Cowboys on or the L.A. Rams. Just, just kidding. Actually, I'm not really kidding since I'm from Southern California. But, you know, I was born here so I can kind of have it both ways. We're distracted. We order fast food. We've lost the art of just sitting down and breaking bread with somebody. You see, in that culture, in that Middle Eastern culture, breaking bread with somebody was a sign of acceptance, a sign of friendship with somebody. This is partly why it was so bad that Judas betrayed Jesus. And where did it, was it revealed that this would happen? While they were breaking bread. So here's Jesus breaking bread with these sinners and tax collectors, accepting them in relationship with them. And the Pharisees are like, what is going on? Do you at least see the tension of why this would happen? Now, it says twice in this passage, I don't know if you picked up on it, whatever's repeated is important. Whatever's repeated is important. Whatever is, okay, I'll stop. Do you notice just in these three verses, it mentions twice that Jesus was dining with tax collectors and sinners. Mark wants to make sure we don't miss this. It's very, very important. So it says, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Now, one thing we know about tax collectors is they were hated by the Jews. You know this. The tax collectors would work for Herod Antipas, who was a puppet king for Rome. Basically, what a tax collector did, at least the way it was viewed, was turning his back on his people and working for those who were oppressing his own people. There was so much shame in being a tax collector that that shame actually carried over to the rest of the tax collector's family. Because sometimes they would siphon off extra from their neighbors for themselves and there's nothing they could do about it. So by the way, the Bible regularly critiques the Pharisees and it should, but can we at least have some sympathy because if you and I were there and we saw Jesus dining with these people who were hypocrites and siding with the oppressors, you and I would probably wonder why Jesus was doing this too, wouldn't we? If we're honest. Now, it also says he's with sinners. I think we tend to think, oh, it was the murderers or the drug dealers or the prostitutes. No, actually, in this context, sinners basically meant those who failed to follow the law. Those who fell short of the requirements of the law, they were sinners because they couldn't righteously follow all the things that God required. Now, it says specifically the scribes who were the Pharisees were there. Now, do you know the difference between the Pharisees and the Sadducees? The Sadducees based their relationship with God on work in the temple. So when the temple was destroyed, 
the Sadducees disappear in AD 70. The Pharisees based their relationship with God on all the laws and rules that they could follow. So the temple's destroyed and the Pharisees continue because they could follow the law and develop rituals. So the Pharisees were a group of people that were a more conservative Jewish sect. Paul was a Pharisee who tended to pride themselves in following the law to the letter, you know, T, so to speak. Cross all their T's, dotted all their I's. That's who this group, the Pharisees, are. So then we get to the heart of the passage and the point Jesus makes. Jesus says this, it is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but the sinners. Then let me read it again just to make sure we're picking up on it, because this is kind of the climax of the teaching. Jesus said, it is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but the sinners. Is Jesus saying there's two groups of people? There's righteous and they're sinners. Is this is what Jesus is saying? The answer is no. That's actually harder to do than you think. Seriously, say no and go, it, it took me like hours to work on this. Say yes and go like this, it really messes with your brain. It's almost as bad as the Patriots being in another Super Bowl today. <laughs> almost. Although you've got to respect. Anyways, we won't even talk about that. Jesus is not saying, let me be very clear, that he came for those who are sinners, not for those who are righteous. That's not his point. How do we know that? Well, you read the rest of the Bible, and it's very clear that Scripture and Jesus believe that all of us are sinners. Mark 7, Jesus said, it's from the heart that comes idolatry and wickedness and sloth and greed and pride. Jesus knew what was in the heart of man. In fact, Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Do you know what all means in Greek? It means all. Yeah, there's nothing fancy to it. It means everybody. In fact, 1 John Chapter 1, verse 8 says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. So Jesus is not saying, God sent me and I came to earth to deal with those who are actually sinners rather than those who are righteous. He's using righteous ironically. Not referring to people that are righteous, but people that are self-righteous. You see, it's not just the sick who go to a doctor, Right? Not everybody goes to a doctor who's sick because some people don't even know they're sick. Some people know they're sick, but they're still not willing to go to a doctor. They're in denial or they think it's not a big deal or they're too prideful. Those who go to a doctor are those who are sick and who recognize that they have a problem and a sickness and a malady that they cannot fix themselves and they need a power outside of themselves to get well. You know what Jesus is saying? He's saying, I didn't come for the self-righteous because they don't think they're sick. 
They think by their own power and standing, they are righteous before me. I came for those who are sick because they know it. They know they need some medicine to get well. Do you see what Jesus was doing? He didn't come to call those who believe they are well, but the outcasts who knew they needed to be made whole. Jesus didn't say, first get your life together and then come and I will dine with you. That's called moralism. Jesus wasn't a moralist. Rather than he said, I will go be in relationship with you because I know you can't get your life together and start to live rightly until you have the medicine that only I have to offer, which can heal you and give you the power to live rightly. Do you see the difference? Oftentimes as Christians, we confuse this. We want everybody to live rightly first and then we'll be in relationship with them. That's not what Jesus did. He was in relationship with outcasts. He was in relationship with tax collectors. He was in relationship with sinners because he knew that it was only when they experienced his medicine, his grace, that they could be transformed from within and then begin to live the way that God wanted them to live. But don't make the other mistake people make. People also say, well, Jesus was just okay with any lifestyle. Jesus went around and loved and affirmed every behavior. In fact, Jesus probably had the view that said, to each his own. I affirm everything. I'm not going to judge. Friends, that's also a mistake. Jesus believed there was a standard, and he believed in hell and believed that our choices could send us there. He wanted people to repent and turn from their sin, but he also knew in his love and grace and relationship first was the way to get sinners to understand their need and see the power of the gospel and be open to the medicine. Sometimes we reverse this. You know, it came out not long ago. I'm a superhero guy. I like superheroes. I've been wearing superhero shirts all weekend. I'd wear one this morning, but they wanted me to wear the wake shirt, which is nice. It looks good. It looks sharp. It looks really sharp, actually, by the way. And uh, it came out maybe, I don't know, two, three years ago, that X-Men, this Marvel comic superhero, one of the members, Iceman, it came out that he's gay. And when this was released, I read a story by a Christian leader who said, here goes Marvel again, indoctrinating people preaching this kind of anti-God message. And of course, the left secular media picked up on this and said, here goes Christians again judging everybody. Now, I saw that, and I kind of thought about it. I thought, you know what? If somebody asked me, gosh, you're a Christian. You like superheroes. I understand that Iceman is gay. What do you think? How would I respond? And I always think, how do I respond with grace but without compromising truth? What does that look like? So if somebody asks me, our response would be, well, here's Marvel, a public company, trying to make money, noticing that the world is changing. Why would I be surprised that Marvel does this? 
In fact, I'd be surprised if Marvel doesn't do this. They're not a Christian company, and they're trying to be successful business-wise. Then somebody pushes back and goes, well, aren't you a Christian? Don't you think that's wrong? I'd say, look, I do believe Jesus is God. And if you read in Scripture, Jesus has very serious things to say about how he designed us to live in relationship. Yes, that's true. But maybe Marvel's doing this because they're actually trying to help kids. Let's find some common ground amidst our differences and see if we can help kids. And gay kids, by the way, are more likely to feel depressed, feel lonely, and attempt suicide. Some of you might recognize the name Kirsten Powers. Kirsten Powers is a journalist. She used to be on Fox News. Now she's on CNN. And she actually was the one who first called the media on their failure to cover the Gosnell story, if you remember this. Well, Kirsten Powers grew up in a secular atheist home in the Northeast. And she actually wrote in her book that she used to get together with her friends, and one thing they would consistently do is mock Christians for being stupid, uninformed and just ruining our country. And she said, you know why I did that? She said, actually, I didn't even know any Christians. Can you think about that? Just imagine that. Someone grows up their entire life in an influential position, doesn't even know a single Christian at all. I wonder how many Christians there were in her life that just didn't reach out to her. Well, anyways, she didn't believe in God. Her family didn't. As she got older, into, I believe she was into her 20s, she met a guy. Now, isn't this how stories often go? This guy was a Christian, but he was different. He was likable. He was thoughtful. Didn't fit her stereotype. This guy was a Christian. I want you to listen to how he invited this progressive atheist to church. Here's what he said. He said, do you consider yourself tolerant and open-minded enough to consider joining me one day at church. Now, honestly, what's anybody, especially a progressive, going to say, nope, I'm closed-minded? Like, that's a really brilliant way to invite somebody, right? She goes, Oh, sure, I'm open-minded. Sure, I'll go to church. She goes to church, and it happened to be the church of Pastor Timothy Keller. If you don't know Timothy Keller, he wrote a New York Times best-selling book called The Reason for God. And he does in this book, and he did in that series, kind of what we did this weekend, in the sense that we talked about apologetics, defending the faith. Why does God allow evil? Is there such a thing as truth? How do science and faith intersect? That's what we did over the weekend. That was covered at church. This was the first time she heard good reasons to believe that Christianity was true in the context of a relationship with somebody who cared. She ended up becoming a Christian. Now, she is to the left politically of me still quite significantly, which is what made her recent book called The Silencing interesting. So here's somebody who's a Christian, believes in Jesus, politically to the left. She writes a book calling out the left because she says, 
Classically, liberalism was about uh, human rights and freedom of speech, freedom of the press. She said, now the left has become illiberal about silencing and punishing people who don't agree with them. Now, I think the book is especially powerful because she's on the left calling out her side for what she says is their intolerance. Is a really, I thought it was an interesting book. So she walks through government and media and all sorts of like the university where you see this happening. Now she gets to the end and in the back of my mind, I'm always thinking, well, what's her solution? How do we fix this? We get to the end and keep in mind, I spent $28 plus tax for this hardback book. That's a lot of money and time. I get to the end and in one single paragraph, she gives her response. I read it and I took the book and I tossed it across my desk. I'm like, really? That's it? Like someone could have told me this in 20 seconds and saved me all the time to get to the solution. And then I like thought about it some more. Then I thought about some more. And then as I reflected upon it, I thought, she's exactly right. This was worth it and some. You know what she wrote? In the back of her book, she said, we should all make efforts to invite people who hold very different views into our worlds. Contrary to popular thought, familiarity doesn't breed contempt. It breeds understanding and tolerance. Now go make some unlikely friends. And she's right. She's right. I'm so glad I brought that book. And I also saved you 28 bucks. <laughs> it started me thinking in my life. I'm like, how many times do I step out of my comfort zone? How many times do I reach out to somebody who sees the world differently politically or morally or religiously and just build a relationship? Yes, I want to see them come to Jesus. But even if they never do, building a relationship and loving somebody who sees the world different has value because this is what Jesus has done for all of us. He stepped into human nature to reach down and become one of us so we could know God personally. Yet the reality is a lot of us don't do this. We listen to news that supports what we already believe, and we hang out with people who see the world as we do. And then we kind of wonder, how do these idiots on the other side see the way they do? They're just blinded and stupid. We're tempted to believe this, and the gulf just gets bigger and bigger. If you want to have compassion and love for people who see the world differently, step outside your comfort zone and build a relationship with them. I have a YouTube channel each week where I answer like a tough question that somebody sends in about like, can Christians do yoga or tattoos or abortion or something like that? And one week I met a youth pastor and asked him if I could interview him because I thought his story was so powerful. He lives in Ohio. And he told me a story about how as a youth pastor, he was invited to be the club advisor for an LGBTQ club at his public school. Now, instantly when some people hear this, they'd say, no, I'm not going to support that. I said, well, what did you say? He said, of course. I said, yes. I said, why? He said, because they wanted to hang out with me. I said, well, what happened? He said, we'd meet weekly or every other week. And the conversations, like they really felt marginalized, like everybody hated them. He said, they finally turned to me and said, why don't you hate us? He said, I don't hate you because I'm a Christian. They said, you're a Christian. Well, what's a Christian view of homosexuality? 
So he pulls out his Bible in a public school in the LGBTQ club and starts talking about the Bible. Instead of going to Genesis 1 and Genesis 19, Leviticus 18 and Romans 1, he says, I just want to go to Jesus. I wanted them to see the love and compassion and grace that Jesus offered. Four of them went to his youth group. Three of them trusted Christ. I asked him, I said, how did this affect you? He said, you know what? I was actually really bigoted against this community. I didn't realize it. But when I got into relationship with them, God began to soften and break my heart. Friends, Jesus took a risk to step outside of his comfort zone, build relationships with people who were considered outcasts and who were tax collectors and sinners because he knew it's only when they saw something different about his life and understood grace that they could be made whole and then with that medicine live the way God wanted them to live. I was riding with a pastor in, uh, in the southeast and we drove by a Unitarian church. I was going to preach at his church. I said, wow, have you met this pastor? He looked at me. He's like, no, it's a Unitarian church. Why would I meet him? And I said, well, if you don't go reach out to him as a pastor, who's going to? <laughs> I mean, just go knock on his door and say, hey, I'm a pastor down here at the whatever church it was. Can we go to coffee? I want to hear your story. Tell me what you believe. Let's have a conversation and just start building a relationship and love him, and maybe you'll have a chance to share the gospel. But we stay safe, don't we? We don't want the risk. We don't want the challenge. We don't want the difficulty and the messiness of doing this. So let me ask you some questions as we wrap up. Number one, like Jesus, do people want to be with you? Do they want to be with you? Even though you believe this stuff we teach you, do people still gravitate towards you? Second, how do you show love to your enemies? How are you countering the narrative that Christians are bigoted, hateful, and homophobic by loving people? And I noticed your values as a church, but I want to ask you, what is one risk you can take to love people who probably won't show up here Sunday morning outside of your comfort zone? Show grace to them. Show kindness to them because we have a broken, hurting world. How can you show kindness and grace to them? You know one reason I think we don't do this? Because we're afraid people will ask us tough questions that we can't answer. What they ask about the Trinity, problem of evil, evolution, which is why I've committed my life to help answering the toughest questions that people ask. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church. A podcast is never meant to replace gathering with your church to hear the preaching of the Bible. So we want to encourage you to be part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. and would love for you to join us as we enjoy Jesus together.